Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of the Trudy Podcast. We are at episode 132. Crazy, crazy, right? I remember when I started the podcast back in 2020, 2019 maybe it was, oh gosh, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if I got to 300 episodes? So we're almost halfway to 300 episodes. I think I landed on 300 because I saw that a lot of people barely easily got to 50 or 100 episodes, but then you looked around and you thought, who are these master podcasters? And they're all at 300, 500 episodes, 1,000 even, which is mind-blowing that you could interview that many people, have that many conversations. In light of that, I am very excited to welcome today's guest. His name is Mark Donkins, and he's the founder of a beautiful charity called Forever Projects. And when Mark reached out to me and said, I'd love to jump on your podcast and share what we do, I asked a little bit more about what does Forever Projects do? And the cool thing is, is that there's a lot of tie into women and small business because their charity is based in Tanzania. And part of the work that they do is they educate women, coach them and support them to start small businesses as a way of helping them to walk walk out of poverty and help their communities, but also create this self-sustaining future where they can become self-reliant. And that's a really cool position for these women to be in, considering that they are living in in poverty to be able to feel this dignity and independence from earning their own money and therefore being able to help their family and, and the families around them. So I thought, yes, let's do this. Let's dive into your story and hear about how you started this tra- charity, how you ended up living in Africa for three years and also adopting three beautiful babies as well. So they now have a family of six and run Forever Projects. It was an interesting conversation for a couple of reasons. Yes, the backstory is really cool, but also I wanted to bring it back to business and charities, we often don't think about what it takes to run a charity market a charity, ensure that you're able to cut through the noise and it's not just a transactional experience for the person that's donating. So you'll learn a little bit how he does that and that translates very much to any of you that have small businesses that are creative as well because a lot of the marketing that they do is very creative and and they're thinking long term as well about how can we innovate this model, they have a 100% model, which means that they donate 100% or 100% of the funds that are donated go to the work on the ground in Tanzania. And so how can they do that in a really powerful way? How can they connect directly with the people that they know will want to support their work? So I think you will love this episode If you want to learn more about Forever Projects, you can check out the links in the show notes. I've popped them in there, their Instagram and their website. And without further ado, let's dive into episode 132 of the True to You podcast. 
Welcome to the True To You podcast, your go-to show for practical wisdom to build a meaningful, creative small business. You'll find content on marketing, mindset, and tons of experts who want to help you grow a thriving small business that you love. My guests are exceptionally creative women building businesses from their zone of genius, all while balancing many other roles in their life. I'm your host, Ruby Marsh. Let's do this. I would love to start with the name Forever Projects because I feel like that name has some really beautiful symbolism to it and the fact that you are a charity and it's work that sometimes from the outside can feel like you're giving a donation and is this transactional is someone just going to get something on the other side and and that's it my you know my money's gone to do that or you know what is what does it look like for for us seeing forever projects in terms of the yeah, where this whole name came about because I'm really curious about that. Yeah, so we, as you know, my wife and I lived and worked in Tanzania for three and a half years, background in education and uh, in a whole nother story. I mean, we felt really strongly about opening a home up to kids who didn't have that hope of a family of their own. So uh, during our three and a half years living and working there, adopted or fostered and eventually adopted three more beautiful kids, Shay, Charlie and Jabari. And we adopted them from an organization called Forever Angels Baby Home. And it was an organization that, felt very strongly about keeping kids with their biological family members at all um, at all costs. And, and, and you know, foster care and adoption would only be a last resort if those biological family members couldn't be, um, you know, supported to keep caring for children that are malnourished. Um, so we were obviously very aligned with that philosophy on biological family first and, and our kids didn't have that option. Um, but as this organisation was, was growing, it was trying to think really, from a systems change perspective and think what would need to have changed in the lives of these women who are tragically abandoning children like you know women like our mums our, our kids biological mum and then so many other like all the other children at the baby home that we walked past as we started the fostering process the 57 others like they're all there because their mums weren't able to keep caring for them so what would the projects need to be that they could implement to keep these families together um and so the their initial kind of pilot project basically caught a woman in crisis before that point when she'd uh, be separated from her child, provide nutrition for the child and then set her up in a small business to help them be independent forever into the future. And so it's the projects of Forever Angels, uh, hence ah. Forever Projects. Yeah. So that was a kind of long way of getting around to it, but it's it's that, that was the work we really felt passionate about funding and that was what their passion was in terms of really, as they looked into the future, they're like this is going to be the, the key to our work because if we can yeah uh remove those obstacles ahead of time kids don't need to be abandoned in the first place yeah 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 it's always that prevention rather than cure mindset that i think you know a lot of us think about with our health these days but we don't mm. realize that there's a whole set of other problems out in there in the world that we could actually come in and and help them to create something that means that yeah these families don't adoption is 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 probably for some of these kids 
like a, a beautiful option, mm. but it, what if they didn't have that in it? So totally. I'd love to know the connection with Tanzania. How did you first decide to go there? Yeah. and end up living there for three and a half years that's what yeah. you said wasn't it yeah three and a half years yeah so yeah. wow I, it's um it started with actually my oldest son is now 16 was six months at the time and where um you know and must have just fed him and he's sleeping soundly on the in the bassinet next to the couch and we're watching some television one night and we watched this documentary it was called the dying rooms it was really hard to watch and it was about um children in developing countries that are in orphanages that you know, we're really not um, looking after these kids. And there are these rooms where the kids were just literally left to their own devices and would pass away. And we're watching this and just looking at our son going, how is this the same world? And it's not mm -hmm. okay. And so that that was the kind of first seed in our hearts planted to think about, you know, what could our family do not to, to solve that problem, but be a contribution to it. Um, and so long story kind of short, we, we started investigating foster care and adoption and what that might look like, felt really strongly about inter-country adoption, um, felt strongly about Africa as a continent and um, the, the red tape involved in the Australian process was pretty significant and we were really keen to go on an adventure and move anyway and, and work and teach abroad. And so they were the kind of swirling things that came to our head when one day Anna just said, why don't we just move there and 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 you know, make this process happen in the context of, of an adventure. And so, yeah, Tanzania was a country that um, was safe. Um, we could get jobs and we investigated, you know, the, obviously that social welfare system would be compatible with people like us being there for a number of years. And, um, and we investigated the kind of organisations that did have children in care and were these organisations ethical and above, above approach and all sorts of stuff. Um, and obviously, importantly, on the back end, like when we're done, could we actually come home um as a whole family so that tanzania ticked all the boxes and then that was where we started applying for jobs there and got one um at a little place called moshi which is right on the southern slopes of mount kilimanjaro so that was that was how we ended up there and it was just amazing wow very very thought through process i feel like a lot of people would think oh you know on a whim let's go see what happens but you went with the real intention to hopefully be able to provide a home for mm. and a family for some not so fortunate kids. And yeah. yeah, just, I can't even imagine what was it like landing there? You hadn't been there previously, right? No, I'd never been. No. I'd never been to Africa. I'd never been to Europe, uh, you know, done some travel Pacific Islands and bit in South America, but yeah. So you know, you land there with a four and one year old after thirty hours in transit, and uh, picked up by a colleague who we we're about to start working with, and you just get in the four drive, loading your luggage, and then you're like, "All right, let's go." And you know what it's like if you're driving around those countries that at night there's no kind of street lights, but there's so mm. much activity. And we remember driving along and there'd be people everywhere, and you know, walking home from work and donkeys and buses that are way overloaded with luggage and um, so that that first, you know, wow, we are we are here, kind of yeah. thing. Um, and then you get that initial kind of um, not culture shock, but just adjustment to go. All right, this is a new place. I've just got to be kind to myself as we adjust. And um, yeah, but it was, we we just loved it. It was. I would I would love to be able to go back and just re-experience that again for the first time, and just the um, 
you know, we'd get out, walk out of our home, walk towards, we lived on campus. And so Anna was a boarding parent as and a school counselor. So we lived on the school campus and we'd, we'd wander out of our house to the school dining hall to have breakfast with little boarding students. And you look to the left and Mount Kilimanjaro would just appear behind the wow. clouds. And, um, you know, you didn't, on the weekend, you could get in a, your four-wheel drive, go on a safari or during the week, just go to the local market, speak Swahili, get fruit and vegetables. And um, yeah, so to have that just literally outside your front door for so many years was really like quite special. Yeah. What an experience for your your two young kids too. I mean, <laughs> they probably they were still very small at the time, but do they remember little bits of that experience? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So Jemima feels like she was born there because she was one and a half when we moved there. And I remember Anna remembers the story. We had some friends that had moved to France for a while and we'd never been to Europe. And so we took turns to kind of visit them throughout that period of time we were there. Jemima took sorry, Anna took Jemima with her and, you know, big shock for her to go from Tanzania to France. And then um, she went into this supermarket that, you know, was lined with shelves of toys and she got overwhelmed. And Anna said, she, Jemima said, everything's, everything's too many, everything's just overwhelmed <laughs> by choice. Because yeah. it's not really a toy shop in the city we lived in. Um, and then when she came home, going from the airport back to our home, she would look out the window and see like, you know, the, the dirty roads. And she said, ah, my dirt. <laughs> oh, so wow. just, um, yeah, you, that moments like that, you're like, okay, this, this kid is pretty much, you know, growing up as a, as a child in just like our, um, our adopted kids, you know, that was her home and she didn't have any memory of Australia before we left. So yeah, yeah. it was really special. They've got such beautiful memories and we all went back, uh, so grateful we did this just before the pandemic 2019 as yeah. a whole family. So I went back and yeah. spent six weeks there and they, like all of our kids just adored it because they had these memories, whether it was through stories or photos or their own experiences to, for us to kind of go back and reconnect to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So you run the charity forever projects and you've got a team tell me about the team that's required to run this charity you you have also quite a, a strong creative media focus as well so maybe you can talk to me a little bit about how you decided to go down that route of being a charity that is focused on a certain way of Mm. I use the word promoting. I feel like when you talk yeah. about a charity, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but it's, you, it's, are, you do have to market. You are essentially 100%. are still a business, but it's, it's, so you still have to have that business mind. And I imagine people do start charities with such good intent mm -hmm. and then they go, oh, hang on. We've got to actually get some money to get these projects off the ground and that's not yeah. easy and so talk to me about assembling that team mm. and why you have quite a focus on the the marketing creative side of the business yeah yeah so I think it, it, it really comes back to the early days where you know we, we, we were living there um started fostering our kids talking to the local teams that were running the organization we'd adopted through about their vision for the future. And it was, as we'd said earlier, like reaching women in crisis before the point that families were separated. And I had this vision of a pilot project to kind of start testing out mm. how they could run this. And it was going to cost like $4,000. And we're like, oh, 
we were, I was coming back to Australia for a visit and I was like, we can raise that. So we've got 60 friends and family, our local friends, like cafe, just, they said, Hey, you can have the space. We'll put the food on, run an event. So, yeah. you know, you can run your typical fundraiser where you go, well, let's do the, you know, buy a ticket on entry and, you know, we'll do silent auction and stuff. But we thought, how can we connect people to the stories and the, what we'd experience ourselves? What would we like? this event to be like for us. So it was myself, mm -hmm. a good friend of mine, Ben, who's, who's a co-founder and, um, and my sister, Kate. And we thought, well, let's just take stories, 16 stories of the early work that has proven successful in this project, um, hang them on the walls like an art gallery with just a little plaque that really highlighted the, the woman's story and what the kind of empowerment item might have been, a sewing machine or, you know, startup capital for a market stall or whatever it might be. And then just invite people to say, well, the sewing machine costs 250 bucks. Would you like to buy one for a woman like this in the future? And just trust people to being like, get the right people with the right stories and trust and see what happens. And we ended up raising 16 grand. So quadrupled their annual budget. Mm. We were able to send all of that to Tanzania because we just we didn't have a charity at that stage. We just said, send the money to our bank account. We'll withdraw it in Tanzanian shillings back in Tanzania and we'll give it directly to the partners. So there'll be no cost of admin. And I think it was that cycle, that first event where we were like everything in this can be scalable so the vision on the ground can be scaled um the number of people that we have coming can be scaled the stories can be scaled we can move from physical environments to digital um and then we can even scale a, that that 100 model and then mm. maintain the the commitment to giving a donors 100 of their money to, to tanzania and so so i think that that's kind of been at the heart of what we did and so therefore storytelling has continued to be a big part of it so in scaling up i took my mate my mate ben who i mentioned um to a trip just him and i to tanzania and as a creative i just knew that if he spent some time getting to know the women in the project the local partners the especially the culture and the environment um he'd be able to really build like a brand and a um yeah just lead out our storytelling uh, around that because as you said like a lot of people have great intentions in starting something but you have to think about marketing. You have to think about what story mm. am I telling to invite someone to get involved here. And I think maybe where charity goes wrong and where some businesses go wrong is we're thinking about ourselves too much and the value that the transaction would bring to us as opposed to what value will this bring to a customer or a donor. Um, and I know we've both got a love of Seth Godin and he talks about yeah. even with charity, like if someone donates to charity and gives $50, $50 they're getting more than $50 worth of value from that experience otherwise they wouldn't have donated so so from an empathy perspective like what is the thing that this donor is getting it's probably a story they're telling themselves about who they are and the change they're making in the world and how do you therefore lead out with that at the start um so i think that's that's been the key to us um really having some success initially and then being able to maintain that as we've scaled up just keeping our donors um not, not first and foremost from a narcissistic perspective, but just thinking about if this project's in scale, it needs money. So how do we delight people to, to want to give and not guilt them into it? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a, a very intelligent way of looking at it because mm -hmm. humans are naturally emotional people. And when we talk about selling, when we're helping our small business owners and creator club which is the coaching program that i run with my husband mm -hmm. we say you know if you are 
telling a lot of stories through your own experience, your client's experience, where you can empathize with your audience mm -hmm. or with the people that you want to help mm -hmm. and connect with them on that emotional level. People are going to feel really connected to those women, right? And yeah. especially as as another another woman or as someone that has a family, if you can connect with them on that emotional level, they're going mm. to say, oh, I know exactly where this is going or I've felt like that woman too, even though you're not yeah. in the exact same dire circumstances that they might be in, but there's definitely things we're all humans that we're going to connect with on the same same level. Yeah, and so, I love that. Yeah, I think that's using those resources and having friends <laughs> that, yeah. that are that are creative like that. Um, it's it's a medium that's still so underutilized, mm -hmm. isn't it? And I think uh, what's why I love podcasting because it's even though it's a voice, it's not necessarily always video as well. It's one way to be able to go deeper and to get into the stories and. Mm -hmm dig up the emotion that's felt by the person and even just hearing your transformation with your family and, mm. and what you've done over the years together as a family. Like I, you know, I even feel more connected to that. So really, really cool. I love that. Yeah. You spoke about Seth Godin's old mm. MBA just very quickly there. <laughs> and yes, he's someone that I love. My husband's done Alt MBA yeah. in 2019. Yeah, I think we may have done so, it at the same time or close to. Yeah. 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 I think um I think you might you might have been in a different um because you're all in little cohorts, aren't yeah. you? When you yep. do it. Yeah. That's a very intense experience for <laughs> anyone that doesn't know what Alt MBA is. I think a few people on this podcast will know who Seth Godin is. He's probably one of the best known mm. marketers mm -hmm. around today, modern marketers. Yep. But OMBA is one of the programs that he runs. So maybe tell us a little bit about what that involves and then how you're able to translate some of the learnings mm. from that very intense experience yeah it's certainly yeah yeah and you know they're emphasizing the alt in front of the mba so when you think mba you think a couple of years a lot of money um you know status big projects and and alt mba being 30 days proudly unaccredited as seth says no certificates no tests but it's it's so transformational so it's really rooted in the idea that we don't need more information because we have that at our fingertips you know on google and anywhere we want to go but we what we don't have is a network or a support community which is why it's so great with what you're doing uh, with your work to actually go okay what we what are you going to do with that information um and and who are you seeking to serve and how are you going to make change happen and so it's 13 projects that they call them prompts um that mm. you're doing in a, in a group in your time zone of maybe 20 people and it's a three-day shipping cycle so you'll get a prompt and assignment you'll have a first look at it and you'll be thrown into zoom with people you didn't ever met and you've got to be brave enough to share your first take on here's my you know first draft of my assignment that i've had nowhere near enough time to do but have the guts to ask for feedback and don't turn up with something perfect or polished but you know just a, a really average first draft get feedback go away ship it for midnight wake up the next day 
you know, and then, and then, oh, wow, I did it. And then there's a hundred other projects that have been posted on that, you know, board um, across the world. And then the next day you've got to give five comments for other students' work. So read their work. They've done the same assignment you have. And then generously see and nudge them towards a little bit what better looks like. So you're learning to give feedback and then you're getting feedback yourself. Uh, so you're learning to give and receive feedback. And then day three is, okay, reflect on that feedback, synthesize it and write a reflection on what, how that changed your mind and how you see differently now. And then mm-hmm. the next day is like, okay, assignment two. And you do it for 13 projects over 30 days. And so it's not so much that you're learning anything new, even though you are around decision-making, goal setting, empathy, all that sort of stuff. But it's more about the transformation that happens to you as a person. And I'm sure you noticed this with your husband, like um, way more eager to give and receive feedback, happy to send something into the market that's not perfect because there's no other way to get feedback. Is this a good post? Is this a good blog? Is this a good video? We'll we'll find out. Um, Yeah, so I think that that posture of ship your work, eagerly anticipate feedback from the people that you care about serving and then synthesize that and repeat again. Like that's really what I think helps um, businesses get to kind of product market fit and serve their customers Mm -hmm. better much more quickly than sitting on an idea for six months and not having the guts to share it. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on that. That's that's the work these days. And as more people start small businesses, it feels easier to start a small business. Anybody can put a post up and says, I've got this for sale or I've got this service and you have an audience. But I think the biggest thing that old MBA teaches you is that term that Seth always uses, which is just ship it. Yeah. You ship the work and then you have the opportunity, like you say, to refine it through the feedback that you get. But so many people still, unless they put themselves almost through that kind of initiation, yeah. you don't really understand what it looks like to create a volume of work, to create mm-hmm. a body of work mm-hmm. and to then get that sort of feedback back and what that can actually mean for your work versus just putting stuff out here and there, you know, and, or not being consistent or being Mm -hmm. too afraid to, to share things. Those like big, big barriers that we see and, and it can really make or break a business, can't it? Totally. Yeah. And, and when you, when you see that for the first time, you can't forget it. And yeah. so, you know, all right, if I'm feeling some kind of what he calls the resistance or fear or whatever, um, that's probably a sign I'm on the right track. And I've got to learn how, to learn how to kind of dance with that and just have it sitting next to me as I do the work and not try and shut it up or let it stop me. All those mm. kinds of things, the imposter. Um, yeah, super, super important, aren't they, for everyone who's, I'm sure, all of your community. Uh, yeah. Just like you and I would just wrestle with that. And like everyone does, everyone's human. So, yeah. Mm. And how did that change the way that you, did you do old MBA before or around the start of, around the start of yeah, projects? Kind of around the start. So we, yeah. we, we kind of launched in 2015 after a couple of annual events and 2015 was the moment we said, let's do this all year round and see what, what happens. Uh, and then I was still teaching full-time maths at the time and just kind of, this was a side hustle, you know, six kids got a mouth to feed. Yeah. 
and so an alt MBA was for me the kind of transition program where I could really focus on how how do I not just for my sake get out of full time work to part time teaching and then have some time to actually dedicate to scaling up for projects, but um, thinking about what would the strategy be for for projects itself to scale up? What did it need? Um, yeah, and and I think the key thing for us there was uh, we've got like the a unique model for our charity, which is it's a hundred percent model. So we've got a obviously all businesses, including charities, have operational costs, and we're no different. So we've got a core group of supporters that cover those costs, which means mm-hmm. if you were to go online and donate a hundred dollars, like every cent of that, even the credit card transaction, um, will be covered by our core supporters. So a hundred percent of your hundred bucks would reach Tanzania. Um, so we had a small group kind of funding our costs at that stage. And and my goal at LTMBA was how do we grow that group to kind of have the money to pay people like myself and others as we try and scale up our work. And yeah, that idea of instead of thinking, all right, well, I'll go up to someone and say, Hey, would you like to donate to our charity's operational costs? Here's what's in it for me. Really changing to think, well, what would be in it for them? And, uh, starting there. So from an empathetic, 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 empathetic perspective what's it like to be this person um and then based on how they see the world what's the most generous way i can show up and does that include inviting them to be part of this thing um and if you don't start with empathy you're only thinking about yourself um yeah so that was a real catalyst i think for that for that journey for us yeah yeah and then in terms of the the marketing something that Mm we spoke about right at the beginning was storytelling. Mm. I know that this is a focus of your marketing. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how you've approached marketing more specifically. What do you focus Mm. on? What have you seen is most important in terms of getting your message across because I feel like with charities it could start to feel like you're making an ask all the time and all you're asking it's like here's here's what we're doing come to this or donate the and and so it can start to feel maybe a little more transactional or one-sided why did you choose how did you choose to approach your marketing and why yeah i, th- I think it's um even going back a click thinking about all well, the so uh, when, we, when you're marketing um you're communicating your values right like that your values will mm-hmm. come through and that and as you said if you're being transactional if you're a transactional person and your values are rooted in that as opposed to transformational relationships that will come through in your marketing so going back to first principles and going out our, our values are abundance so let's lead with generosity um empathy what's it like to be the other person and then mm. initiative don't sit on that once you've once you've thought about what it's like to be someone and you know what generosity looks like don't just sit on it ship it initiate act um so i think that's the way we've tried to approach marketing so w- whether it's a high net worth donor or a 10 year old who's gonna run a cupcake stall or something like empathy what's the what's it like to be them and mm. What, where are they going? What do they care about? Um, and if it's not where we're going, then we shouldn't be, you know, trying to engage with them because we're they're not actually we're not going to add any value to their story and where they're going. But if if they if we do assert and have a hypothesis that this person is maybe going where we're going, then what's the most generous way we could show up and invite them to be part of it? And if it's a ten year old kid, 
asking for a hundred bucks is not generous, <laughs> but if it's like, Oh, you want to run a cupcake school. Awesome. How can we help? You know, do you want some design help or whatever it might be, or if it's a high net worth who is passionate about generosity and wants to get their company involved. All right. Well, how do we help you with that? Like, so acting generously and leading with that and not um, mm -hmm. sitting on it. And I think at that point, then it's not an ask, it's an invitation because you've identified where they're likely heading and, and what you could do to help them. So you're inviting them into your story rather than saying, Hey, I want to see this or ask you this. And I think that that's a very different way of thinking about it. Invitational versus hard asks selling. Um, and I think if it doesn't feel like an invitation, then we probably haven't done those first steps well enough. Mm -hmm. And you do, uh, I noticed on your website, you have a lot of YouTube videos. So you actually get on the ground, mm. whether it's been in the past or whether you have people there on the ground that can, like, there's a lot of like beautiful photographs. Mm. You're very much wanting to show what it's like for these women, mm. not just the the kind of token photos yeah. that you you tend to see or stock photos or something like that, but mm. actually, or you can see that you've been there and and yeah. capturing the emotion and all of that. Mm. How important was it to do that and, and to be really consistent with that as well? Because it would be easy just to not, but to have very little marketing and just rely yeah. on events and things like that. But you want to keep the story going, don't definitely. you? Keep definitely. people interested. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think the... Uh, going back to storytelling, I heard someone say once that if you're trying to prove something universally, like here's this big problem with malnutrition, um, prove the universal through the specific. Don't use lead out with statistics and all that sort of stuff. Like start with a story of a person. Yeah. And and that person has to be remind, you know, me or your donors of themselves, as you said so beautifully earlier, like the common humanity that we have together. So for that reason, it's not about how many stories you tell. It's about telling a few stories really well in a way that mm. is true to them and their experience and the project. And then that means when someone watches it, if they are the kind of person that would resonate with our mission, they can have a true connection with us through that one single story. Um, so as an example, I know like for your community, like as you've got, you know, some beautiful creatives starting small businesses and you're coaching them really generously. And you think about the common humanity pieces that are with women in say our project. So one of the women named Shakuri might have seen her video. She um she was the 11th woman in the project. And uh, when she gave birth to her little boy, Joseph, she was struggling to feed him. She was too sick to lactate. And so she's watching him become malnourished and didn't have any support from the hospital or social welfare system because, you know, malnourishment's at such a huge scale. Uh, so luckily the, the team at, on the grounds um, was able to in, invite her into the project, provide nutrition for Joseph, identified she was a creative and she was a beautiful seamstress but just didn't have the capital to buy a sewing machine or inventory and so they set her up in this business gave her training and then within 12 months she had this business on the side of her house sewing beautiful material um joseph's running around chubby and healthy and i've been there and bought from her business and it's just phenomenal to see the pride in her you know, eyes as she sells you something and um, she, and your points behind says, look, my house, I'm, I'm finishing now because I've got funding coming in from the business. So that story, when someone watches, it's like, yeah, well, I might not be in Tanzania in poverty, but I know what it's like to juggle family and the 
constraints and the obstacles that come from having a small family and trying to be a creative. And so that story really speaks to that common humanity. And I think if we just a photo of someone without it, even with a lot of text, like it's written forms great, but I think there's nothing like video to really bring that out. Um, yeah. And then that way, if someone's wanting to engage with that story because they're a mum and they're like, wow, what would it be like to not have that support or yeah, I'm a woman in business and I know it's hard to get something started. Like they can have that common connection. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And do you find that even though you can't help every single woman in need, but do you see a flow and effect in terms of these individual women become more empowered and have the resources then to look after themselves? Does it flow on into the rest of the village or the influence that they have on other, yeah. I say village, but they might be living in cities yeah. as well, but the other people that they yeah. are around, it changes the, the, the dynamic. Definitely. Yeah. There's another story, um, Mama Deborah, who, um, had a very different business where she uh, identified that she like she was very strong and she lived in this area where um, there was a lot of construction happening. Um, there's a lot of huge rocks and she's like, I can crush rock into like road aggregate and sell it. And, make it and so what she wanted was like a pair of goggles, protect her eyes and a sledgehammer. And so there's a video on our YouTube channel of Mama Deborah just belting rock. And then that business <laughs> led to her, you know, being able to feed her, infant and and you know create a self-sustaining future but th there's this beautiful quote where I can't, i'm gonna get the words exactly wrong but she said she noticed that there were some other people in her village that were struggling and she was able to help them buy some food and and give them some training and she felt so happy about that and she's like i noticed that my and, and this wasn't in a um egotistical way but like my status in the village went up because i was now able to help other people it was such a beautiful energy she said that with um so you see that and even Shakuri's story I shared earlier, like she during COVID was able to use her skills to help teach women how to make masks to, to wear during the height of the pandemic. Um, and now the, the team's looking at trying to get her to come back in and be a, a coach for current women in the project who are looking at becoming seamstresses as well. So um, yeah, you, you do see that longitudinal kind of, now that we've got kind of six, seven years of data and storytelling, um, seeing the ripple effect as you shared yeah 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 amazing that's so cool do they end up employing other women are their businesses big enough for them to have yeah in some up? cases in some yeah. cases they are, yeah and that's another thing they're really keen to test now is to go and i love the innovation posture of the local partners they're like okay yeah what's the data on the business success rate and how do we get that higher and one of the ones they're testing now is that where you're like um, instead of the women necessarily starting a business that's independent of any other businesses that have been started, what's it look like to give a woman startup capital as an apprentice for say Shakura or Mama Deborah? And then there's that coaching aspect, probably that common humanity as well. And it's not just, okay, I'm, I know how to sew or swing a sledgehammer, but I know what it's like to be you going through this project um, and just seeing what does that do to the quality of the businesses that they're starting and um yeah because it's like like any business that started it's there's so many things like so many obstacles and friction points for the business succeeding so that they're, they're testing stuff like that to try and improve the rate of success yeah yeah 
Oh, that's so cool. I love that. I love that. And I love that they're, they're thinking not in terms of sometimes I imagine with certain projects that you do, the simplicity is essential because you need to know how it's going to work every, uh, every mm -hmm. step of the way. And I know Seth Godin's really good friends with the guy who started Charity Water. He talks yeah. about Scott. Scott Harrison, yeah. yeah. Scott Harrison, yeah. And there's certain projects where it does need a level of simplicity to be able to scale it as mm. well. But I imagine the other way that you're, you're looking at it is, well, we're not necessarily trying to do that, but we can also help scale some of these individual businesses. Mm -hmm. And that means that we have a core business, but then there's also other women mm. that are able to be part of that and, and build it that way as well. So yeah. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. The, the innovation and the, that innovative thinking that can be applied everywhere. It doesn't need to just be, how can we make more money, but how can mm. we get more people involved? Mm. And yeah, yeah. very yeah. cool. So yeah. what's what's on the cards for the future of Forever Projects? What's some things that you're excited about now that you can travel more easily yeah. again and all of that? Are you guys going to go back and spend some more time over there yeah. or... I'd yeah. love to get back. I'd love to get back and, and yeah. just reconnect with the team in person. Like, you know, from a, I mean, it's not selfish, but from a, certainly from a joy perspective yeah. to if we haven't been back in four years, I, I think it's despite that we've been out like everyone, I think manage, okay, well, we need to still communicate. How do we do that? And we've set mm -hmm. up a great system to maintain great connections and to have the stories flying as, as, as they are in terms of, yeah, new, new impact stories and so on. Um, but that, Really excited to see the teams continue to over there and innovate and have the um, the headspace to be able to do that. So obviously before for projects or other funding organizations kind of come around these teams, they've got two big tasks, which is the project and the program itself. But then the fundraising side, hugely different. Mm. One's a marketing problem, one's an operational problem. And mm -hmm. so the more we can remove, not completely, but um, at, to an appropriate extent, remove the fundraising obstacle the better they're going to be at optimizing that program so i think for me that's the thing we're most passionate about is just knowing our lane is here sharing our story as widely as possible um connecting with people that want to go where we're going from a mission perspective and and, and using what's in their hands whether it's money time talent to connect in um yeah but more specifically the the program we're really interested in scaling up here to, to best benefit the partners is like a subscription product for, for giving monthly to charity so we've all mm -hmm. heard charities say yep give monthly but when you think about it from a subscription mindset like a spotify or a netflix like those services are only so good because there's so many people using them and the more people that mm -hmm. use them the more money there is to, you know create more value for the people and so it's no different with charity like the more people giving monthly there's a bigger pool of fun funds that can be sent to provide even more reliability for those teams to go, okay, we're sweet where we are. Where's the next village we're going to scale to or whatever. So um, yeah, our team's really working hard at the moment to think about how we create a really remarkable subscription product for, for charity. So just giving monthly um, where it's a close connection to the impact of your dollars, whether you give 10 a month or hundred a month or whatever it might be, 
um, and then seeing what the local partners can do with that increasingly reliable runway of funds. Um, yeah, so that's that's the kind of big thing we're working on at the moment. Oh, very, very exciting. Well, it's been really interesting to chat to Mark. I realized that we I've actually interviewed someone locally here where I live and she runs a charity, but very different perspective, which has mm. been really cool. And I think so many things from what you've said translate really nicely into small business as well. Or if if the women out there listening to this are also thinking that they want to bring in some sort of charity part or pro bono or whatever it might mm -hmm. be into their business anyway. Mm -hmm. I think there's some really good, good thoughts in there. So definitely thank yeah, you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you so much, Ruby.